Today's, this is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I want to take just a moment to be thankful for those who gave their lives that we could be here and do this today. I often remember the greatest sacrifice ever given on this weekend, which is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his son, but also men and women who died that we could do this is quite an amazing thing, especially in a culture these days that we live pretty hedonistically. There are so many people who don't really understand that there is something to live for greater than themselves. And so we are forever grateful. Let's take just a minute and pray. Father, I thank you for those who have given their lives. I thank you for people here who have lost loved ones, men, women, children, parents, grandparents. Thank you for those who decide there are some things more important than living. There are some things worth dying for. And thank you that our Savior understood that as well for us. I pray that you will allow us to understand it, that we might give our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. He's risen, and so are we. I'll never say that phrase again, the same. Our friend Paul, who has been here with us, he's an RVer, and he comes around every few months, and man, when he said, and so are we, it just went, that is so true, and I trust that we live in light of that. We're going to conclude our discussion on the section of John that David read this morning. Some of you are saying, ah, it's about time. And I'm thinking, you know, there's so much more here. Uh, the Word of God is an amazing thing. The more you, the deeper you go, the more you realize there's a long ways to go. And so this passage on God's love and its relationship to our love with each other has really caused me to stop and think. In one of the men's groups that David was talking about this week, there was a guy who said, this study in First John has made him more aware than ever of the reality of the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and how significant they are, all are. It's pretty good stuff, pretty inexhaustible, exhaustible in its ramifications. And so this morning I want to pick up on another of John's themes that he mentions in conjunction with loving one another, and it is the idea, it is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to exhaust this this morning, trust me. <laughs> I'm hoping to just whet your appetite. A man came up after the first service, and he said, man, did I need that, that message. And he said, I haven't walked away from the Lord, but I got out of step. And so I hope this is a reminder maybe to get back in step. When it comes to dealing with the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, there are significant extremes. On one side of the coin are those who seem to think that the Holy Spirit is really the only part of the Godhead that matters today. He somehow has usurped God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the only one we really need to know or to interact with. On the other side of the coin, there are those the conservative side of the ledger, perhaps, who kind of think of the Holy Spirit as an insignificant stepson in the Godhead. He's kind of an also-ran. I think sometimes we think that 
as long as we understand who the Father is and as long as we love Jesus, we can get along just fine in our spiritual lives. The problem is, apart from the Holy Spirit, what we are is religious, but we'll never be spiritual. It's the Holy Spirit. In order to be spiritual, we have to understand the Spirit. Now, I'm going to say something here. Don't throw stuff until you hear me out. There was a young lady this week who said, you know, I've been coming to his place for a while, and I haven't heard any heresy yet. So here we go. (laughs) I told her, "Uh uh-oh, wait till this Sunday. Don't throw anything until I finish, okay? And don't start emailing and texting, you young ones. Apart from God the Father and Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not God. They're winding up. But apart from the Holy Spirit, neither God the Father or Jesus are God. Now, let me explain. Each is completely God, but not God completely. Which of the Godhead can you take out of the triune God and be left with God? None. So if you say, I only worship the Father, or I only love Jesus, or I'm only in tune with the Holy Spirit, then what we're doing is dissecting God and hoping that God will work. Guess what? It doesn't work. Each is completely God, but not God completely. And so alone, none of them is God entirely. Apart from the interaction with the Holy Spirit, we are missing God, no matter how good our theology is, or how much we know about the Father and the Son, or even how much we believe in Jesus. I was awake this week, so you might as well be awake the next couple of nights worrying about this. This subject of the Holy Spirit is way too broad for us to complete this morning, but I think it's important for us to consider. I'd recommend a book by Francis Chan called The Forgotten God. I reread it this week, and there are some others that are outstanding, but this one is easy to read because it doesn't have big words, and it's a short book. So it's easy to read in that it is readable, but it's difficult to read in the sense that the significant questions for us all are, are we actually in tune with the Holy Spirit? Do we believe that he is God and do we believe what he is purposed to do in our lives? So this morning I'm going to ask us to consider some of the things, not all, but some of the things we know about the Holy Spirit and then wrestle a little bit with some of the implications. The first thing I want us to notice is that the Holy Spirit indwells every true believer in Christ. Now get what I said. Paul, uh, John continues in this letter to make a distinction between those who had looked like real believers and those who weren't. Those who had all of the indications that they were true believers and those who indeed were. Some simply claimed to be, and the distinction shows up in how they responded to what God said. 
Every true believer believes and loves because the Spirit of God, who is love, lives in them. And so what John says is, if you say you love the Father, and the love of the Father is in you, but you don't love each other, it's impossible. And then John goes on to say that we're assured of our faith because of God's Spirit who lives inside of us, 1 John 3, 24. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 4, 23. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. Paul assures his readers of the same thing in the book of Romans. In Romans 8, 9, he says, You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. What I'm telling us is this, when we come to Christ by faith, the thing that gives us life is the Spirit of God entering us and giving us His life. Anything less is not regeneration, despite what we believe or say or think we believe. And so it is simply religion. It's so critical not just to understand, but to lay hold of what Paul and John and the other New Testament authors are saying. The Holy Spirit of God lives in every true believer. In fact, it is the Spirit of God who brings life to the believer, which is the second thing I want us to understand. The Holy Spirit imparts spiritual life to every true believer in Christ. I'm going to go back and read the context of Romans 8-9. Let's start at Romans 8-1. Listen clearly, carefully to what Paul's saying. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, that doesn't mean that you can sin and live like you ever want to and God won't do anything about it. It's not what it's saying. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot, not will not, but cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
What do you see and hear described in those verses? The difference between life and death. There's a kind of life that appears like life, and it's really death, and there's a kind of life that is the life brought by the Spirit of God. Life in the flesh, no matter how religious someone is, and life and the Spirit are not the same. Let me say that again. Life in the flesh, no, how, no matter how religious we are, is not the same as life in the Spirit. They aren't the same kind of life. Galatians 5 contrasts the two lives and says that they're painfully obvious. Galatians 5, 16 to 25, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the very things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and all the other things that are like that. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to those things, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. What happens when we read that contrast? Unfortunately, if we're honest, or if I'm honest, I have to say that the second list isn't all that descriptive of my life. We're going to talk about why that is in a few moments, but the point is that the fruit of the Spirit is radically different than the fruit of the flesh. It's a supernatural fruit, and it's painfully obvious. In John 3, in the discussion with Nicodemus, Nick comes to Jesus at night. First Nick at night episode. There's too much youth pastor left. Jesus told this very religious man that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, he needed to be born again. And this very religious man goes, huh? What he said is, you got to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have have to have life from above. And that life from above comes when the Spirit of God enters into a man or woman. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to give you another heretical question. When did the disciples of Jesus get life from above? I believe it's when they got the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them that it was better that he go away so another helper like him could come and and everything would change for them because he, the Holy Spirit, who they recognized because he'd been with them, will be in them. He would no longer just be with them, he would be in them. 
In John 14, starting in verse 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That phrase means another helper of the same kind as I, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Is Jesus really telling his disciples that they can't understand all of what he has taught them until the other helper comes? Sure sounds like it. I believe what the disciples experienced after 40 days with his disciples. Jesus has lived with them for three and a half years. He died. He rose again, which was somewhat impressive and stark to them. He spent 40 days explaining to them all that he had taught them. And then he says, I have to leave. There's much more I could tell you, but I can't tell you now because you can't handle it. You have to wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to Galatians 3, 13 to 15. I bumped into this passage this week and it went... <laughs> Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now listen to this next phrase. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As I was rereading Chan's book, he called my attention to this. It's a causal statement. It's a causal statement. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He became the curse so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Part of the purpose of redemption is to pave the way that the Holy Spirit of God could indwell us and make us alive in Him. It is causal. It's not just that we get out of hell free. It's not just that we go to heaven. It's not just. It's that we would receive the Holy Spirit. This is the definition of and purpose of Christ's redemptive act. Christ redeemed us so that, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. There are all kinds of things that Christ's death redeemed us for and to and from, but they all, around, they all revolve around this, the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And no theology can get us there. I'm not saying theology isn't important because we don't understand who the Holy Spirit is. We can study till the cows come home. But it's not enough. The disciples believed everything about Jesus. But he said, wait till he comes. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us into life. And allows us to experience the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to know what Jesus prays for his disciples. 
And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live the way God wants us to live. Which is the third consideration. The Holy Spirit of God empowers every true believer in Christ. Now that might bug some of us because some of us may say, I've never really experienced what I could call the power of the Holy Spirit in something in my life that can't be explained by something other than the Holy Spirit. Is it true that the Holy Spirit of God empowers every true believer in Christ? The Christian life is not a life that we live and ask God to bless. It's a life lived by his power. Remember Paul's great prayer in Ephesians 3? We, as we went through Ephesians, we should preach Ephesians sometime. But as we looked at this prayer, and I continue to review this prayer, and I continue to pray this prayer for us as a church, in Ephesians 3.14, it begins this way, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that you may absolutely begin and be able to comprehend how high and how deep and how wide is the love of God. You see the connection with the Spirit's power and comprehending God's love? Without him, we never will get it and we never will know it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand and experience life from above. And he empowers us to love with God's love. That's the point in this section of 1 John 4. We love as God loves because God in the person of the Holy Spirit indwells us and he loves in us and he loves through us. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. We live by his power, but we choose to walk in that power. I can't love or live a Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. But he won't do it for me. He asked me to participate with him. We live by his power, but we have to choose to live in his power. A great balance of that description is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. The Apostle Paul says this, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul struggles with all God's energy that powerfully works in him. And the Holy Spirit of God illuminates every true believer in Christ. John calls the Holy Spirit in 1 John 4, 6, the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth and the spirit who speaks all truth. Again, when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he promised that the Holy Spirit of truth would lead them into all truth. John chapter 16, starting in verse 12. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them. This is the verse I was referring to earlier. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. He's telling the disciples, you can't handle what I got to tell you. And you'll only get it when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. Now, for those of us in this room who are nervous about the Holy Spirit and kind of hold him at bay, what does this mean? We'll never understand who God is. We'll never comprehend his love. And we'll certainly never be able to love. We may have the theology down, but we'll never know it. The Holy Spirit takes the person of God, explains the word of God, and illumines our minds that we might know and understand him. In essence, he's the translator in our lives that speaks God to us and for us. So to quote an old commercial, and there are more of you in this service than in the first service who won't even understand this quote from a commercial. Where's the beef? If all we have said so far is true, why do we so often not experience all that we have said in the love and grace and power of the Holy Spirit? Why do we live so frustrated, even defeated in our spiritual lives? I want to give some potential answers. There's certainly not all of them. But I would encourage us to think through these possibilities. First one is this. We might not experience the Holy Spirit because he might not really be in us. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's possible, John told his readers, that there were those who had left the body of believers. They'd walked away from faith. They ended up denying Christ because they weren't really actually of them. It's really possible to look like the real deal, but it simply be a veneer, which we talked about last week. Only way to test it. It's for God to turn up the heat. There's a second reason that we might not experience the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that we might want him for the wrong reasons. We might be trying to use the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan asked this great question in his book. Why do you want the Holy Spirit? The question came from, he was in the hospital and a man was going into serious surgery and he, was, he had a terminal, probably, condition. And this guy said, I want you to pray for my healing. <laughs> Francis Chan said, why? I don't think I've ever asked that question in a hospital. But what he said is, why do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed just to live a little longer or, or for your own benefit? Or do you want to be healed for the sake of God's glory and, and, and to continue in ministry? 
I think we all say that we want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to love authentic, authentically like John tells us we should. But all too often, might there be some self-centered reason that we want the Spirit's power? Might we be like the magician in Acts 9 who, when he saw what the disciples were doing, he said, give me some of that, I'll buy it. And the disciples said, not for sale. Might we want the Holy Spirit literally so we can use him to get what we want? We want him to get the marriage we want, the kids we want, the life we want, the job we want, the house we want, the car we want, the notoriety, the power, the prestige, the money. One of the problems I see today is that miracle workers are doing miracles so they get attention for the miracles. We celebrate the miracle, not the miracle worker in Jesus. We can be miracle hunting, wanting prominence or prestige or experience. When Jesus was on earth, there were all kinds of people who pursued him for his miracles. But what did he say? It's not about the miracles. The miracles are to point to me. Do you want me? The miracles are a product of who I am, not vice versa. It's him we must want if we're going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. James says the same thing about prayer, doesn't he? In James 4.3, you don't, you don't often get answers to your prayers because you pray with bad motives. You pray that you'll receive so you can use it on yourself. So what are the right motives for desiring the Spirit's power in us? In John 17, 20 and 21, it's this great high priestly prayer. And Jesus said, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We don't have time to exegete this this morning, but let me say that there are three priorities. Communion with God is number one. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we may be in fellowship with the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit just as they're in fellowship with each other. The second thing is community with the believers. Father, I pray that they're one just like we're one. And the third thing is kingdom advancement so that the world will believe that God sent Jesus. Those are the priorities. Another reason that we may not see the power of God in our life is distractions. Have you noticed that there are distractions in life? A lot of stuff vying for attention. Careers and Hobbies and family and kids and grandkids. Remember the parable of the sower? Sower sows the seed and the rocky soil, the cares of the world, or the weedy stuff, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of what the world has to offer can choke the very life out of the spirit in us. We talked about <clears throat> a sincere faith, a pure heart, being one-dimensional. It focuses on one thing. If you don't hear anything else, hear this phrase. The Holy Spirit won't compete to be heard in our lives. 
He will not compete to be heard. He speaks to those intent on hearing and listening. If we want to listen to other voices, he will say, okay. Another one is control, maybe. So often we want the Holy Spirit to bless what we want. The Holy Spirit is to lead us, not follow us. He's to lead us into all truth. He's to lead us into godly living. He's to lead us into God's will. He won't compete to be heard. And here's the second thing. Don't forget this. He won't compete for prominence. If there's anything more important in our lives than glorifying God and walking in his spirit, he'll yield his rightful leadership to those things to whom we want to give it. Jesus never once forced people to follow him, did he? He simply invited them. One other thing I find myself doing is getting analysis paralysis. I want the will of God for my life, not for today. And so because I'm spending all my time waiting to know the will of God when I graduate, when I get married, when I grow up, that's what I'm saying right now, what do I want to be when I grow up? that I'm waiting to hear what God wants from me for 15 years down the road rather than right now. And, and you know what I found with God? He very seldom unveils the rest of our lives. He gives me the next step. And for those to whom he does reveal the eventual outcome, the, <laughs> the process is a little bit circuitous. You remember Joseph's dream when he was going to, all his brothers bowed down to him, right? And he shared his dream with his brothers, and that went really well. <laughs> Do you think Joseph was thinking about his dream when he got sold into slavery and he got thrown into the pit, when he was accused falsely of adultery, when he was forgotten in prison? Don't you think he was saying, where's that dream you gave me, God? And it was as if God was saying, oh, I'm prepping you to be ready when it comes. Sometimes I'm waiting and wanting so hard for the long-term will of God that I can excuse not following him right now and follow him one decision at a time. There's another reason I think sometimes we don't experience the power of God, and that's fear. <laughs> Any of you ever afraid of the will of God? Come on, be honest, give me a little. What if God tells us what he told the rich young ruler? Give up everything you have. And he meant it. Quiet in here. What if God calls us to a place that we don't want to go? What if God calls us to Hilliard? Sorry. We often talk to Worku about Americans think punishment of God is sending them to Africa. 
What if God asks us to take up our cross every day and die to ourselves every day? And he means it. What if God asks us to love others more than ourselves? And he means it. What if God actually wants us to serve him rather than him serve us? What if God really means what he says? What if, what if, and here's the bottom line, we can't trust him? That's what the Bible calls faith. Hebrew says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. In fact, whatever is not of faith is sin because it's all about us. If I trust God if and when and but, remember we talked about that last week? If I can keep my lifestyle, if I can keep my kids, if my kids turn out perfect, good luck with that one. If my, if my, uh, da, 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 da. If I can trust God on my terms, it's easy, but it's not faith. That's where Peter kept getting into trouble. You remember Peter? As Peter followed Jesus quite often, his attitude seemed to be, not your will, God, but mine. Be done. It was as if Peter was thinking, God, you love me, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And we laugh about that. Nervously. After Peter's great failure and denial of Christ, as Jesus again called Peter to follow him, he called Peter to follow him and said, Peter, you're at the end of yourself, and I hope you realize you're not the hot stuff you think you were, buddy. You love me? Oh, yeah. Feed my sheep. Peter, to do what I'm going to ask you to do is going to cost you your life. Do you still love me, bro? There's a great picture of what it means to follow the Spirit of God in the passage we read earlier in Galatians 5. It says we're to walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. It's one step at a time. I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and I came up with dancing. <laughs> Some of you were looking at me like, really? My wife and I took dance lessons, swing dance lessons. Which was really funny because, you know, we'd been married 20 years, had three kids, and her mom was still upset that we're dancing. I'm not sure what she thought it was going to lead to, but. You're dancing. We have three kids. Maybe she thought intercourse led to dancing. I don't know, but. I should have just stopped while I was ahead. <laughs> going, yep, you should have. Use the first service, Giles. Okay, so we go to these dance lessons, and the instructor says there are some certain, some certain fundamentals that you need to learn. You need to learn certain dance steps. You need to learn what these steps are, and you, you need to learn how to do them. And so we did the fundamentals. And then he said, now, what you do once you learn them is you partner up, and one person leads, and the other person follows, which is where it went significantly downhill. <laughs> we were trying to dance. 
And I wouldn't call it dancing. Actually, what it was was two different dances at the same <laughs> proximity at the same time. So the dance instructor said to Linda, Linda, dance with me. And I kept hearing, you have to let me lead. You have to let me lead. You have to let, which I was saying amen to. But what happens when you get the fundamentals and you begin to become a team and one person leads and the other responds and they begin to learn just the nuances, just the feel, just the touch of a hand, just the movement of a body. They begin to be in this synchronized dance that is two bodies doing one thing and it's incredibly beautiful to watch. I've never experienced it, but it's great to watch. <laughs> I should have stopped again. I just, I love you, honey. But we don't dance much anymore. That's the picture of what it means to stay in step with the Spirit. You know the fundies. I've taught you about God. You know me. You know the theology. But now let's apply it in reality. In this beautiful motion of us dancing with the Holy Spirit and in the dance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you were sealed with for the day of redemption. Let me summarize that by saying don't step on his toes. It's the dance. Don't try and take over and lead. Follow his job is to lead us into God's good and perfect and pleasing will. And by the way, if you're here and you're a believer, nothing else will satisfy your soul, no matter how hard you try. Nothing. No relationship can be reduced to formulas, otherwise husbands wouldn't have such a tough time with relationships. But I'm going to give us some of the early dance steps, if you will. The first step in having an authentic relationship, a living relationship with the Holy Spirit, is to get honest. You've got to decide what you really want. Because to have an in-depth walk with the Holy Spirit means some other things probably are going to have to go. What do you want from the Holy Spirit and why? And then I dare you, tell him. That's the second step. Talk to the Holy Spirit. How do you re-engage in any relationship? You start a conversation. You confess. You repent. You tell him what you want. You admit your failures and fears. And then you have to learn to listen. In order to listen to the Holy Spirit, we have to shut up. So much of our prayer time is wagging our tongues rather than opening our ears. And then I want to say this. Start your dance lessons Present your body as a living sacrifice. Take one step of obedience. Stay in step with the one calling cadence. If you are marching in a parade, do you try and stay in step with the person next to you or the person calling cadence? The person calling cadence. And if everybody stays in step with the one calling cadence, everybody else is in step with each other. That's how we love each other because we're in 
step with the Holy Spirit of God. And then the last one, I got a great illustration of yesterday. Sometimes following the Holy Spirit is just hard work and we're hanging on. A friend of mine just had a knee replacement and he's not having a very good week. And I said, hang in there, bro. Every day will be a little bit. Hang in there. The first five days are horrible. Hang in there. After day five, you will quit using my name in vain because I encouraged him to do it. Sometimes following the Spirit is just like that. I'm not sure Paul partied in prison. But I will also say this. When we begin to live in step with the Holy Spirit, life changes. Yesterday, I was at my son-in-law's house, and they were loading up this new toy. He had a Polaris Ranger, which was fun, but he got a new one. The old one had 110 horsepower. This has 175. And he goes to load it on the trailer, and he says, you ever ridden in this? I said, no. And then I should have known better. He says to his father-in-law, get in. Now, what does every son-in-law want to do with his father-in-law? Impress him and scare him to death. <laughs> My second warning should have been when he said, buckle up. <laughs> We're just going for a short little tool. We take off, he hits the throttle, and it's like, are we flying? <laughs> Instant acceleration. We head down this driveway, and there's this hill that is all sandy, and he starts to go up that sand hill, not straight, but sideways, and that baby begins to go like this, and I thought, ah, we're going over, and he hits that throttle. And that baby straightens out and jumps sideways, and we hit the top of that hill and left into outer space. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my neck. <laughs> we we got to land this thing. And we landed, and the suspension is like, whoa. And then he hits the throttle again. I got to tell you. We went around the house on this little track thing they have, and by the time we're done, I'm like, oh, dear God, don't let him go again. <laughs> All my arteries are clean today. <laughs> and I said, holy mackerel! He goes, oh, we weren't even in four-wheel drive. You got to go for a real ride. I'm like, take my wife. She needs a little excitement. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I priced one when I got home. That is the most phenomenal machine I have ever been in, and I want to go again. But I'm wearing a helmet and a neck brace. <laughs> you know why so many of us may not experience the power of God? Because we got to trust him behind the wheel with a throttle. I gotta tell you, we come, 
We came sliding to a halt. And my son-in-law is thoroughly enjoying the look on my face. And I looked over and I thought, I can imagine the Holy Spirit saying, see what you've missed all this time? Want to go again? I've not even had it in four-wheel drive yet, bro. We're so afraid of the Holy Spirit because we can't manage him. We can't dissect him. We can't put him in our theological grid. You know why? He's bigger than our grid. But he's better too. Father, I confess that I live so much of my life boring and safe and in control. When you offer me so much more but I got to let go. Would you encourage us, challenge us to take one step this week of obedience to your spirit and see what happens. I pray in Jesus' name.